0: Are you looking to advance your technology, develop your skills, work with our network of experts, and get top-notch mentorship? Applications are open for the UCSF Rosamund Rise. Through Rise, we identify promising entrepreneurs from groups that are underrepresented in health tech, such as women, people of color, and LGBTQ plus individuals, and we connect them with any number of leaders from our UCSF network and beyond. To apply, please visit Institute.org programs slash rise. Applications close on February
1: 9th. And within women's healthcare, I would say the biggest growth sector is in the fertility sector. And this is something that we've seen has taken over the globe, not just in the U.S., not just in the emerging developed countries, but as a global woman mentality shift of having better choices, more freedom, being capable of having the flexibility of balancing between work and home life, fertility choices and accessibility to fertility solutions are becoming very important and is experiencing significant momentum growth.
2: And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute... The Health Technology Podcast with your host Christine Winoto.
0: My podcast guest today, Lauren Gu, is literally putting his money where his mouth is. As the founder of Recharge Capital, he invests thematically and focuses on important issues like women's health. Lauren is an investment expert and has previously worked with Cyrus Capital and the Blackstone Group. He's also the founder of the Recharge Foundation and the founding chair of the Global Future Council at the Peterson Institute of International Economics. Today, we talk over how he uses investment to change the world for better and how you might be able to do the same thing. Here's our conversation. Well, welcome, Lauren. Thanks for joining me today.
1: Of course. Thanks for having me.
0: And so, um, thank you for joining me from far away. You're not, where are you based these days? I feel like you have a lot of different places.
1: We do. Uh, we have our headquarter office in New York and then satellite offices in Hong Kong, Taipei, and Singapore. Uh, we do have a global mandate as we try to solve those thematic issues with a global mind. So I tend to spend about one-third of my time in the U.S., one-third of my time in Asia, and the rest one-third travel.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a busy time. You you spend a lot of time on the plane. <laughs> so you mentioned about your global mission. Can you tell us a little bit about what is Recharge and sure. what is the mission? And when you said global mission, like what does that mean?
1: Yeah, so... I would say uh, one thing that really differentiates us at ReCharge from the other asset managers is that our philosophy is very much thematic-based in terms of investment philosophy. So unlike the traditional model where people divide uh, investment strategies by asset classes, we really divide things by themes because we do believe that by picking the right themes in investments, uh, especially in the sectors that has multi-decade macro tailwinds, we're able to achieve better returns, but also more margins of errors, given that the fundamentals for those businesses are very strong. And we like to think about ourselves as problem solvers with capital. So uh, the different themes that we go into, we adopt an uh, investment frameworks to identify for each particular region in the world where they are in terms of the phases of development for that sector, Uh, So we can best identify the right type of business to invest in, but also from a vertical value chain perspective, uh, where each business sits in the global value chain. uh, That determines how we look at the potential business being either a global winner or a large regional champion.
0: Okay, so tell us which theme that you are focusing in.
1: So we do focus on four different themes, uh, fintech. Digital assets, semiconductors, and women's healthcare.
0: Okay, since this is all about healthcare, let's focus on your women's healthcare and sure. why is women's healthcare? And then when you say that you're not, you know, focus on the theme, like what does that mean in terms of investing in healthcare as far as from the recharge point of view?
1: Sure, happy to. Um, so why women's healthcare? Uh, women's healthcare sector focus really grew out of a more general. Healthcare focus. Uh, as we have done healthcare investments in the past several years, what we realize is that um, the amount of capital that's going to healthcare globally is very large, but the amount of capital specifically focused on addressing women's issues, both from technology, diagnosis, and service providers, are still very relatively limited. Um, there is um, significant demand uh, given that 50% of the global populations are women. Uh, but, uh, funny enough, I think given that most of the entrepreneurs as well as capital providers are still very much men-dominated, a lot of times people don't feel comfortable talking or addressing women-specific issues. Uh, what's also very interesting, and this is purely from an investment strategy perspective, is that we like those kind of very large, less saturated market with almost very little competition. So purely from a financial return-driven perspective, we also find that to be particularly promising. And within women's healthcare, I would say the biggest growth sector is in the fertility sector. And this is something that we've seen has taken over the globe, not just in the U.S., not just in the emerging developed countries but as a global women's mentality shift of having better choices more freedom being capable of having the flexibility of balancing between work and home life fertility choices and accessibility to fertility solutions are becoming very important and is experiencing significant momentum growth
0: so when you say fertility what does that entails
1: yeah, so the way that we think about fertility, it really would go through the top of the value chain to the very bottom of the value chain. The way we look at a value chain is there are three segments. On the very top, you have technology innovation. Uh, so this covers technology, diagnosis, therapeutics. And then in the middle, you have technology applications. Those are uh, how technology is being turned into products. And then at the very bottom, you have business innovations. Those are the service providers, clinics, operators, that are making the entire experience more consumer-friendly, but also more accessible. Uh, Given the recent uh, years of geopolitical turmoil, what we do believe is that, if you think about this value chain, the very top of technology innovation will continue to be global winners. But the middle and the bottom segments, uh, technology application, business applications, will tend to be regional winners. And therefore, it calls for a more global mandate in terms of covering the fertility solutions on a large global scale. Uh, When it comes to the specifics of what is in fertility, I would say uh, on the technology side, there are two areas of focus for us. Uh, Number one is better egg freezing. Uh, experiences and technologies. And number two is embryo analysis. Uh, When it comes to technology application, business applications, this part gets a little bit more interesting um, as the global IVF or fertility market uh, is quite uneven in terms of cost basis. Uh, And generally it is on the higher end in terms of affordability spectrum. Uh, As more women seek out solutions for this, we do believe that there's a significant driver for international medical tourism. Uh, And international medical tourism will actually allow different economic classes of women be able to have the same kind of choices as the upper elite uh, echelon of women. And therefore, our focus is trying to invest and help founders and management team to build uh, the best-in-class technology-standardized, clinics that cater to different socioeconomic classes on an international scale.
0: But do you think when patients travel somewhere for getting access to medical care or in this case, fertility, it still is serving the upper echelon?
1: It is. But if you really think about how fragmented the entire fertility industry is, uh, and The fragmentation is caused not just by the cost basis, but also by the international regulatory arbitrages. So, for instance, uh, some of the countries allow for genetic testing, gender selection, surrogacy. Uh, Some of the other countries don't. But having a digital first experience for women to be able to, number one, have a starting point of freezing the sperms and eggs and number two have the gametes or the embryos travel to different places uh, in order to have the same quality of care but at a reduced cost it's not necessarily making the individuals to travel but making the samples to travel and that significantly reduce the cost for the overall experience so granted it is still not going to be able to serve down everyone but it is making it a lot more accessible compared to what the U.S. cost will be, even just for U.S. domestic citizens.
0: So when you're for recharge, when you focus on the women's health, specifically fertility, Is that, are you thinking broader beyond fertility or right now that's the focus?
1: So the reason that we think fertility is very important is because this is perhaps one of the biggest decisions in a woman's life. And when you have the right quality of care for fertility, especially on a service provider level, then you really hook those women into a trust ecosystem. And before fertility happens, you can take care of their parenting management, menstrual wellness, and post-fertility can take care of the menopause. So you really have the capability of building a holistic women's healthcare full-cycle experience for women who are seeking solutions that are simply not enoughly addressed by most of the general
0: clinics or hospitals. Okay, so you're talking when you say fertility actually is uh, covering women from the early all the way throughout their life cycle, that's exactly. related to their women <laughs> Exactly.
2: This podcast is sponsored by brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com.
0: So tell us a little bit more more about ReCharge. Um, How big is it? Like when, you know, what stage... Uh, the investment that you guys are making in this space as well?
1: Sure. So for us, um, we have five different strategies. Uh, we have about $6 billion uh, of AUM. We, the, the, the reason, as I said from the very beginning, we're thematic first rather than asset class first is because we do believe that for us to be able to solve those sectorial issues Uh, we should not be confined or defined by uh, stages of the business. So actually, if you think about um, our single verticals, such as the fertility or women's healthcare vertical, we go all the way from incubation and C-stage to acquisitions. What we do believe that is really setting us apart is the capability of consolidating different service providers on an international scale from the very beginning, Uh, to the very end, and then being able to create back-end synergies. Uh, As you are very well aware, for the healthcare segment, uh, it is very difficult for clinics to be immediately rolled up to another international clinic or a large operator to expand internationally from one continent to another. Uh, And this is the benefit of having an investment vehicle behind it where you can synergize those things on the back end without necessarily be breaking the corporate boundaries of individual assets.
0: So what you're saying with the recharge is that there's some, say there's a women health services that is in the U.S., then because of your involvement, they have the opportunity to have access to patient
1: population, say, in Singapore. Correct, correct. And then the other thing that's really interesting is the reason that we invest along the entire value chain is we try to create a close to positive feedback ecosystem. So we would invest in diagnosis and technology companies where they'll give the exclusive regional distribution rights to the different clinics that we own internationally so that there is an initial. Guaranteed and controlled revenue trajectory for those businesses to help fast track their commercialization process. But at the same time, you have all those clinics who are equipped with the most advanced and up to date technology, so they become the most competitive and relevant in their respective markets and continue to gain market share. And then on the very back end, and this is very specific to the fertility side, uh, there is the opportunity to create and build a and large international sperm egg banking exchange, which you know, internationally, it's a great and interesting arbitrage opportunities. In the U.S., there is a significant shortage for Asian eggs. And in Asia and Southeast Asia and other parts, there's a significant shortage for Caucasian sperms. Uh, And it's very difficult for one clinic or one regional operator to do such things. Uh, And this is where having international vehicle with a global view really come into play.
0: So are you saying that then it opened a pool to a Bigger sperm and egg donors. Correct. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, and um, I guess mine there'll be a lot more diversity, I suppose, in um, the the population. I, I mean, I mean, I read it somewhere that you know this one person who is a sperm donor. I think they have hundred children in yeah. this country it seems like a scary thought to me, but um, it's um, it's a different uh, era um, Tell us more about so it, about recharge is that it's a six billion dollar fund is huge uh, how much is that allocated for the women's health side of things versus the rest?
1: Yeah, so right now we earmarked about $200, for $200 million for the Women's Health thing, just because we do believe that as we look at the entire healthcare ecosystem, the reason that we only recently started um, in the last year and a half into Women's Health is because prior to this, the investable universe is simply lo- not large enough. And we're very pleased to see that finally there are enough opportunities for us to play in. And I think that is a combination of, number one, more entrepreneurs are finding the industry to be uh, lucrative and interesting. And number two, uh, the political debate actually spurred more people's interest in getting into the space and trying to come up with solutions to address those issues. I think one of the things that's, you know, very challenging is for people to really be able to change the political narratives Uh, And I think whatever has happened in the U.S. will actually only spur discussions and divide between the conservatives and the liberals in other parts of the world, including Europe, Latin, Asia, etc. So with that kind of um, rigid system in place, um, instead of trying to necessarily fast track the change of political decisions, uh, we should be better equipped with coming up with solutions to at least... Uh, allow people to have the choices. Uh, And therefore, uh, starting from 2021, we started to see a lot more people getting into the space. Therefore, compared to our overall size of the AUM, it is still relatively small, but we do believe that this is a growing sector and we're in this sector for the long game. Mm -hmm.
2: Um,
0: reminds me again, so when I think about there's a lot of changes in the US in terms of women's health is the Roe v. Wade. Uh, How is that? affecting what the fertility business
1: yeah i think you know there are a lot of negative news headlines about uh fertility clinics getting freaked out about whether or not uh they're able to um uh what what their process will be to dealing with the frozen embryos etc but at the same time it actually trickled down to individual mentality of a lot more women are now seriously researching about different options they could have, uh, both from the initial stages of egg freezing as well as just being curious about an entire IDF journey so that they have a playbook in the back of their mind should they choose to exercise so. Uh, And that becomes very interesting as we see some of our portfolio companies start to get a significant influx of organic inbound outreaches from clients. Uh, really asking about you know starting the service, starting the egg freezing storage, and really getting to know you know what is the worst case scenario so they can plan for their life. And the other thing that has really gotten um, very much picked up is what I mentioned international medical tourism. So in Mexico, about twenty three percent of the annual cycles come from uh, the U.S. nowadays, and that number will continue to uh, go up as. Some of the Mexican clinics, especially the newer built ones, are started by U.S.-trained doctors, have better facilities and more f- consumer-friendly settings, and is about one-fourth of the cost of the U.S. Uh, experience. Um, and you know, if you think about surrogacy, uh, especially as a lot of younger generation of women uh, decide not to go through pregnancy themselves, uh, the U.S. cost for surrogacy is still very much prohibitive. Uh, it goes anywhere from $100,000 to upward of $400,000 per baby. Uh, and that is simply not affordable for the vast majority of the population. Uh, but there are other markets elsewhere that provide surrogacy services at significantly lower costs because of the cost of living uh, differential. So, mm-hmm. As we think about this, uh, it gets very, very interesting for us to be able to identify the right opportunities that not only serve the domestic market but also on an international scale cater to different social economic classes.
0: Yeah, now this is really interesting in terms of like the ethical part about having, you know, this business um, of uh, surrogacy, and I, I wonder how much regulation will get into put in place at some point, and I don't know.
1: I think this is a part that is both tricky, but at the same time, very um, interesting. Um, Nothing, I think the ethics is one part of it, uh, and then I think regulation is a separate part of it. Uh, If you think about different countries nowadays adopt different regulations towards their stance on fertility, especially on the entire IVF journey. Nothing is round as illegal uh, in their respective countries, so people can definitely travel in and go through the process. But at the same time, again, I would say the ethics part, as much as um, it is a global standard, uh, it is also a personal choice, uh, and it's not so different from religion. Um, mm-hmm. So as service providers or even as investors, I don't think it is our job to judge individual choices, but it is our job to provide optionalities.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's it's just it's, it's really interesting. I sometimes, you know, I think now the fact that surrogacy costs a lot, so only a few number of people can afford it, and I'll be interested to see as more people can afford it if there will be a new regulation being put in place. I don't know. And
1: um, yeah, yeah, no, I think that's definitely a very valid concern and a very valid point. Uh, and this is a part where you start to see the connection between a developed market and emerging market. Mm -hmm. Uh, at the end of the day, um, economic benefit, uh, of, uh, some of the emerging markets being able to receive by providing this as a medical tourism service is quite significant and could potentially change a household's life. Um, so in one country's mentality, it might be, um, a concern around whether this is the right way about approaching life uh, in another country, this could really become um, a way of uplifting the economic potential or jumpstart the economic potential. And this is not so different from, you know, you know when some of the Asian countries first emerged, uh, they had uh, lower labor costs and wages uh, that allowed them to really contribute to the global uh, supply chain ecosystem.
0: Yeah, no, this is uh, interesting. But I do want to ask you um, a little bit about your background. Usually I start uh, my conversation uh, with the my guest background, but somehow what you're doing is so exciting that I forgot to ask that part from the beginning. But tell us more about Lauren, like what, you know, what you know what's your background like what brought you to where you are with the recharge why you start recharge like what is that personal passion and experience that bring you to where you are today
1: yeah for sure my personal background so i graduated from harvard was a major in mathematics uh, and then i start off my career Uh, in New York working at a hedge fund. Uh, The hedge fund was focused on distressed assets. So all the way from public equity to private equity, public credit to private credit. Um, So I've always had a training and experience and also a passion of looking at companies from a full stack perspective uh, across the entire capital structure. Um, When I left the hedge fund to start ReCharge, um, I carried that mentality with me. And this is why I do believe that for good businesses, you should be able to look through the different asset structures and then really back the fundamentals of what they're doing from a business model perspective, from a product perspective. Um, So when I started Recharge, with that mentality, uh, my biggest goal for Recharge is to be redefining what the asset management industry does today, which is shifting that philosophy from an asset class first investment philosophy and allocation philosophy to a thematic-first asset allocation and investment philosophy. So that is the thought leadership that Recharge is aiming to build, and we're trying to prove and validate that thematic-first investing is a superior way of generating alpha through our concrete investment returns.
0: This is interesting when you say because you're you know not focusing on asset class. That means allow you to invest, say, in the early stage all the way to the private equity, including... All the other things, public
1: too.
0: right? Including exactly. public
1: equity, so, credit, everything. Right.
0: So, how do you run that, right? Because I think oftentimes, when you're, uh, you know, of course, my brain is on, but based on the asset class, when you're investing in this size of fund, it kind of have a, is it? It requires a different brain to, you know, you look at the risk, you assess the risk. And you're so used to that kind of asset class, and then you're on a different side. I mean, how do you, you have different yeah. set of people who focus on that, or
1: is yes, the same person? We do. No. <laughs> we do. So what the way that we structure our teams is that uh, within each sector, there's a sector head who really knows the uh, thematic space very well inside and out. Uh, and the sector head is usually a seasoned investment professional or someone who came from the industry uh, that is able to give us exactly where the future trends are going. And then following to your question, um, within the sector, uh, underneath different asset classes, we would have different teams to cover different stages. So um, from a talent and personnel perspective, I would say it is not so different from uh, a traditional asset management company, even though we do try to make sure that uh, our employees become trained as T-shaped talent or pie-shaped talents, where they know a little bit of everything and they know one or two things really, really well. And those one or two things tend to be the sectors that they're covering. Uh, but from a structure perspective on a recharge platform level, uh, we exercise this um, semantic first and asset class last philosophy when we execute investments
0: thank you for the clarification i think that's can i can see how it works now in my brain
1: Uh,
0: (laughs) so i want to ask you something i you know i was uh reading up a little bit about you i thought it was really interesting that you're also interested in you know not only this whole uh investment in women's health but something in art
1: yes Tell me more about Uh, that
0: art interest. And I I just thought it was fascinating.
1: Yeah, for sure. So the art interest, I think, is also just very similar to how we do our investments uh, under my firm. Um, There's a thesis behind the art collection and there's a thesis behind the artists that we support. And those are artists who are addressing societal issues with their artworks. And most recently, in the last five years or so, I would say, most of the artists that we support have been women artists and minority artists, uh, with a particular focus on women artists who talk about issues about sexuality, fertility, women's rights, etc. So I think, you know, we look at the companies that we invest in, those are operating businesses uh, that express our thesis, and we look at the art, I think, you know, art is such an interesting medium to prove the existence of uh, humanity, but also prove the existence of certain social movements. Uh, And I think, you know, it's a very interesting pairing to look at the artists and artworks that we support uh, and the investments that we make. So I draw a lot of parallels between the two.
0: It is is, is interesting that you're connecting that part about your theme of the investment and uh, tie that with your art interests as well. Um, so I assume when you say uh, your art uh, investment, are they mostly in the U.S. or is also global as well? It's global.
1: Uh, so we do believe, just like we believe, that um, the women's health is a global phenomenon. We also believe that women's rights movement and women artists rising is also on a global level. Uh, and it's very encouraging to see because I think art is such a, beautiful language where you don't have to necessarily cross the borders. Uh, The visual imageries are just so sufficient in terms of uh, getting the resonance come across either in person or over the screen. Uh, And that also uh, creates a lot of conversation points for people to reflect upon. Uh, And this is a particular area of Interest even for everyone at the firm. Uh, so we actually decorate our office with a lot of those women artist works. So people mm-hmm. feel that they're passed in uh, the uh, uh, creativity and the messagings of those artists.
0: So am I assuming that the investor on the art side and versus the company the, the recharge are two different kind of investors, or they are actually?
1: Yeah, the the art side is not really for investors. The art side, we set up a foundation, uh, so it's purely for uh, collecting and support of artists, especially women artists who want to have an international stage in terms of traveling exhibitions as well as exposures. Um, So that has nothing to do with economics, has nothing to do with investment returns. It's two completely uh, separate arms under recharge. One is for-profit uh, and financial return driven, and the other one is uh, purity charity.
0: I'm just sitting here trying to think about, you know, it's your interests and the background and what you do is in a way very unique, but everybody's unique. But I'm just in that case, like I don't see often that people just tie that together in a way that you do. And you're a man and talking a lot about supporting women, which is great. I mean, like, where does that come from? Where's that drive, yeah. that interest, and in why you think this is so interesting?
1: Yeah, so uh, I think, you know, on a business level, as I mentioned before, you know, I just really saw this uh, as a very interesting, unsaturated, less competitive, but high-growth potential investment opportunity. But on a personal level, um, the Area of interest really piqued me because when I first graduated from college, I actually went through the planning for IVF process myself. So I went to freeze my sperm uh, from storage, uh, looked out for potential egg donors, really got through the entire um cycle of going through IVF because of family succession planning concerns. Uh, Being the only child, my parents were very concerned if anything would happen to me. Uh, So, you know, just also planning for that future generations uh, and signing all sort of legal papers on power of attorneys was, and then allowing the Gamias to travel internationally, um, it's a very hectic experience. So, That hectic experience is what allowed me to really discover the space and realize, number one, this is a highly intricate and fragmented sector, and number two, there is a lot of room for improvement and efficiency, Uh, and number three, it's actually a fascinating and highly profitable business. So Mm -hmm. with that in mind, we started to invest in fertility businesses at very early days, but as I mentioned, it's not until two years ago that this particular space in fertility and women's health care became large enough for us to have a dedicated strategy for it. So it's not like, you know, this is just a light bulb moment where like we just naturally got into it. There was a personal side, the self-discovery side, uh, self-discovery led to some very successful investments. And then we saw the market being ready for it.
0: Mm-hmm for those who don't know you i'm just thinking about you're at college you're thinking about your succession being the only child i just thought that's very fascinating i don't think anybody who are 22 years old worry about (laughs) whether where's that coming from
1: uh it's it's interesting i think um you definitely hit it right uh I guess you know even back in college, I was being called a little bit of an old soul, uh, and I think part of it came from the family influence, where being the only child, I was both privileged but also burdened with a lot of family responsibilities, and that really got me to think about you know how do I continue certain family legacy? How do I make sure that things get carried forward? Uh, and the second part is I try to think about the world in uh, a framework model. Uh, and just similar to how we developed investment frameworks, I also think about, you know, what our personal framework for legacy and what our personal framework for societal contributions. Uh, so the personal framework for legacy uh, really led me to think about, you know, there is the tangible legacy, and the intangible legacy, and there is, call it, you know, the legacies that's left to be fulfilled by the future. And for me, it is having that framework that got me to start planning for things really early on. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm like a person who has like five, 10, 15 year plan, but I would say I'm a person who has a checklist of things I know need to happen in order for um, certain legacies to be achieved.
0: I Okay, this is getting too personal, but I'm just curious, being a mom of a single child, uh, So at what point are you going to execute? Like, okay, now I have this sperm bank. And when am I going to get this, deploy that?
1: Well, you know, this is, again, right? Like, um, for me, it's a backup option. Uh, So if I do end up having a family, uh, getting married, et cetera, by 32, 33, when I feel ready, uh, then, you know, I will have, you know, the baby I'll probably still goes through the IVF process uh, to make sure that, you know, we can have the babies born healthy, etc. Um, but if that is not the case, and I know this is getting a little bit philosophical, you know, sometimes love happens by serendipity and it's completely out of your control. Uh, and I don't like this feeling of being out of my control. Uh, then I totally do not mind being a single parent and uh, I will be able to pull that trigger.
0: Okay. Well, that sounds good. Well, thank you for your time and sharing your thought and your insight. Um, one last question I should ask, actually. So obviously, you know, you you graduate college, you went to hedge fund, you start this Richard, which is a large fan for us. Uh, Is most of your investors are global investors who are believing in the same philosophy as you are, or is
1: it? Yeah, our investor base is pretty global, and uh, we're pretty fortunate to be able to find investors who resonate with our thematic first philosophy. Uh, It is definitely unconventional, especially for some of the larger institutional investors, because they've always had a system of checking the boxes based on asset classes, uh, and you know, as I always say, real achievement in professional life is do the right but hard thing. So for us, I think we're definitely doing the right thing. But is it tough? Yes, very tough. Uh, but we would like to, you know, turn the returns into evidence to show people that this is the most viable way going forward.
0: And for those people who listen to your podcast and if they're working on something in women's health, uh, what is the best way for them to work with you and your team?
1: Well, we are always looking for new opportunities. And uh, we have a website where people can drop us a note and tell us a little bit more about what they're working on. And I'm sure one of our team members will get back to them very quickly.
0: Sounds good. Well, thank you so much.
1: Of course. Thank you, Christine.
2: thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.